because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. All right, well, I usually look forward to Power Hour, but this week I'm particularly looking forward to it for a couple reasons. One is I'm very excited to discuss the subject matter, which includes this book, that I have in front of me, Apocalypse Never by Michael Schellenberger, uh, as well as the book False Alarm by Bjorn Lomborg. Uh, I've read False Alarm. I'm ready to talk about it. Unfortunately, I've just gotten my digital copy so far. My physical copy is arriving tomorrow, so I don't have a, a nice physical copy to show you like I do of Apocalypse Never, but super excited to talk about both of these books. I think they're both very valuable, and I highly recommend buying both uh, before they're they come out. I think Apocalypse Never comes out six days from now. It's June 24th right now. And then False Alarm comes out sometime in July. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, uh, not that it matters that much, is just we've had a bunch of logistical delays getting to today. So I've been raring to talk about this for the last 30 minutes. So uh, let's, let's jump in. So as I said, the subject matter today is these two books, Apocalypse Never by Michael Schellenberger and False Alarm by Bjorn uh, Lomborg. And I should say, I have been in discussions with both authors about setting up interviews with them on this podcast. They've both uh, been receptive to the idea, so I'm hoping to get both of them on within the next uh, month or two. Now, before I go into each book, I want to talk about what I think is the commonality among uh, between the authors of this book and between these books uh, in particular, and what I what really excites me about these books coming out because I think they they represent a certain emerging emerging genre uh, genre rather on environmental issues that's very important and I would I would think of it as these are both books that are centered around the issue of what I would call like human climate influence. Sometimes people would say man-made climate change. I think human climate influence is a little bit more precise. But in any case, they're, they're books about that. And they have the interesting attribute of A, being dominantly in agreement with the what's called the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So being in general... Uh, agreement with its predictions about climate, both its predictions about temperature rises and then the associated changes in climate that that will or won't cause in terms of changes in you know, uh, storms, floods, sea level rise, wildfire, etc. So they're very much in line with kind of the, the mainstream IPCC assessment. And yet at the same time, both of them advocate the continuing use of fossil fuels for decades to come. They do it in slightly different forms. I'd say Lomborg advocates it a little bit more. Michael Schellenberger is definitely focused more on nuclear, but he's also focused on natural gas. And at, and at many points, he he explains why the use of coal is vital to people, uh, vital for people around the world, and, and more or less endorses that. So it's this interesting phenomenon of they're saying, yes, we agree with the mainstream assessment of climate change going forward, and yet we still think that fossil fuel use should uh, continue. And at least in Lomborg's case, he talks about it uh, expanding along with other forms of energy 
use expanding. And this may seem paradoxical because the way the issue is framed is, oh, if you, quote, believe in climate change, then you must be anti-fossil fuel. And certainly if you believe in what the UN or the, you know, the consortium of scientists the UN puts together, the IPCC, if you agree with that, then surely you need to be anti-fossil fuel. And yet, uh, and, and many of the people you see disagreeing with proposals to rapidly restrict or even eliminate fossil fuel use, usually the, the people who disagree with those proposals, they often say the IPCC is significantly exaggerating or likely exaggerating uh, the extent, the future extent and consequences of warming. And I, I tend to be in that category. I think there are various mechanisms in place that cause the IPCC to exaggerate something real. And I've talked about that in various episodes, and I've talked about it in my book. Um, but what I want to highlight here is these are people who are more uh, in line with kind of the mainstream IPCC assessment, and yet they still say, oh no, still fossil fuels are vital. And as part of that, that climate catastrophism is wrong. So if you notice the, the titles of the book, so we have uh, Mike Michael slash goes by Mike. So Mike's book here, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism uh, Hurts Us All. And so he's you know characterizing it as environmental alarmism because he goes broader than climate, but environmental alarmism is a broader bucket that climate alarmism is part of. I often call it climate catastrophe or climate catastrophism rather. And then Bjorn Lomborg, he also, you know, his book is called False uh, Alarm. I forget uh, the subtitle, but it's basically about how, you know, climate catastrophism is very harmful and how we need a different way forward. So interestingly, we could summarize it as they acknowledge the mainstream view of climate change, but reject climate catastrophism. So I think this is a really interesting, and I think it's really important. And it's in part interesting and important because it's actually very logical. So why it, why is it it logical? Well, what they point out, what both of them point out in their books, and Lomborg is even more focused on this point, but Schellenberger certainly has quite a bit on this, that even if you take what the IPCC actually says, and one key distinction they make is between what the scientists say and what the summaries of the scientific literature say, and then what the media say. And one of the big things they point out is how much of a distortion distortion there is when you go from the published findings of scientists that have to adhere to certain kinds of standards, and then you go to the portrayal in the media. And one thing they note, they note over and over is there are just radical, radical uh, distortions involved here. So that's one thing that's going on is they're, they're taking a clear-eyed view of what is actually being said versus popular reporting uh, on what's being said. And so that that's that's part of it. But I would say even more so what they're doing is they're doing two things that I like to try to do myself, which is one, they're looking at concerns about climate in their full context. So 
I often use the term side effect. They're, they're thinking of our impacts on climate as a potential side effect of fossil fuel use. So just as you would think of what are the side effects of an antibiotic, and you would weigh those in deciding whether to take the antibiotic, but you would also weigh the benefits, and you'd weigh the benefits and side effects of that versus you know, a given antibiotic versus the benefits and side effects uh, versus the benefits and side effects of the alternatives including alternative antibiotics or alternative treatments or do or even the benefits and side effects uh, of doing nothing. And that's how you would think of that. And they they are both thinking of fossil fuels and indeed other parts of industrial life in Schellenberger's case, because he's not just focused on energy. They're thinking of that in this full context way. And I've long believed that if you do that, you come up with a radically different evaluation of fossil fuels than you do if you only look at the side effects or if you catastrophize the side effects. So they're looking at the full context and that includes incorporating the benefits and then it also includes being proportional and precise about side effects. So that's one thing um, that they're doing. And then the other thing that they're doing, and this is, I'd say Lomborg, they both do it well, but I would say Lomborg does almost a heroic job in this regard in term, terms of emphasis, is they don't look at our influence on climate in a vacuum. They don't just look at, oh, what changes are we going to cause? And they just assume those are bad. They look at those changes in the context of what they would call our capacity to adapt. And I, I use, I like the term climate mastery because I think adapt is, doesn't even quite describe what we're able, the, the positivity of what we can do in terms of climate. I like the example of the same thunderstorm that would be deadly and destructive 200 years ago can now be the romantic setting for a dinner date, right? So we can like master climate, we can neutralize its threats and also maximize the benefits we derive from it. And sometimes we can even turn transform a threat uh, into a benefit. But in any case, whether you call it master or adaptation, they're very focused on looking at these different, uh, you know, different kinds of climate consequences. So, you know, potential change in temperature, potential change in rainfall, potential change in dryness. And they don't treat it as, oh my gosh, if, if there's a change, it must be a catastrophe. They look at it in the context of what are human beings going to be able to do uh, adaptively? And particularly, what are they going to be uh, be able to do adaptively if they continue to be more and more prosperous, which requires reliable, low-cost energy. So those are all elements of these guys are, I would say, looking at the full context. And then the other thing they're doing that I, I always try to do myself is they're looking at, they're looking at it from a pro-human perspective. And they're, they're both pretty explicit about this. I'd say Lomborg... Uh, Ex, ex, Longborg, I, I wasn't going to say especially, by the way, that's a pet peeve of mine. I was going to say Longborg explicitly. So don't, don't jump down my throat. Like I just jumped down my own throat. But, so uh, Longborg is, is explicit about this. And, but I mean, I would say both are a little like, I, I, I try to be very explicit about this issue, which is this issue of how are you measuring good and bad in terms of decisions. And the default way with climate, unfortunately tends to be we're measuring good or bad, by the idea of unchanged, by the standard of unchanged nature. So if we're changing the climate, that's bad. And if we're not changing the climate, that's good. And the perspective they are much more taking is no, changing the climate and everything else. So the full context, including any changes to the climate, we're measuring them by the standard of human life. So how does this actually, is this going to on balance help or hurt 
human life. So it's very, they're both very human centered. And so, I mean, this may be self-congratulatory, but I, my belief has long been that if you look at energy and environmental issues from a full context perspective and from a human centered perspective, then you are going to have a much more positive evaluation of fossil fuels in particular and industrial civilization more broadly than if you look at it from a, you know, you only look at the negative context or you're looking at it from the perspective of unchanged nature. So what I'm particularly excited about is I think that both authors are using the right kind of methodology. And at the same time, they're applying to that methodology a kind of conventional view of climate change, which is more extreme than my own. I sometimes wish I had the conventional view, like for a whole bunch of reasons I probably won't get in today, but I've talked about them. Like, I just think that there is dramatic exaggeration in terms of how much warming is likely and what's that what that's likely to lead to. I think they're just, I don't think it's a conspiracy, but they're just certain systemic incentives that push people in that way. But I sometimes wish, oh, I wish I had just the conventional view, because even if I had the conventional view, I would still be super pro-fossil fuels because the benefits are so high and our adaptation slash mastery capacity can overcome uh, so much. So I think it's really cool that these are people who have more of the conventional view on climate, and yet they're still ending up in a position where they're advocating policies that will actually allow billions of people to have reliable low-cost energy versus most people who say they agree with the conventional views on climate advocate rapid reductions or even elimination of uh, fossil fuels. So I, th I think that there's this is it's very, very important that we have people who are not being positioned as skeptics of mainstream climate views, but are still champions of industrial civilization in general. And I don't know whether they would call themselves champions of fossil fuels, but at least like advocating that as a significant value going forward and certainly rejecting climate catastrophism. Okay, with that in mind, so that's sort of my own ex excitement about it. Maybe one, one other thing I'll say, and then I'll go into the books, is that the I think of both of them as members or even leaders of a pro-human environmental movement. So you can think of it as for the past 50 years or so, we've had an environmental movement in that there's been a really big focus on what is the relationship between humans and our natural environment. Or you could think of it, I sometimes think of it as what's the proper relationship between humans and the rest of nature. And before 50 years ago, it's you could argue that many people weren't sufficiently interested in that. They weren't sufficiently interested in concerns about pollution. They weren't sufficiently interested in the ecology of different kind, parts of the earth or even the earth as a whole. Uh, I think this can be exaggerated, but you can really make an argument that, okay, people weren't sufficiently interested in getting the best possible relationship with our natural environment, but... The, the movement that came to be the modern environmental movement tended to be very focused on this idea of unchanged nature and that the proper relationship is one where we minimally change or minimally impact nature. And I think that we should be really interested in and concerned with our relationship to the rest of nature, but that we should have a pro-human relationship with the rest of nature, which means we care about things like ecosystems and even endangered species, but we care about natural beauty and pollution, all these different things, 
but we care about them from a pro-human perspective. Not that we want to minimize our change of them as an end in itself, but rather we want the best world for human beings, which sometimes means you minimize your change on certain things, like a beautiful species or something like that. You want to preserve an area, but also that you dramatically change other things, like a city is just a dramatic change of the natural environment, both where it's located, but also all the materials from around the world that go into um, building the city. And it's, it's exciting that there is these two people who are influential and very good writers and good thinkers, and they're both coming out with these books that I would think of as pro-human environmental movement. All right. Hopefully that's not too much preview of it. Uh, let's, let's jump in, just give you an overview of both books, some things I think are particularly valuable. And it, this is not at all a comprehensive summary. It's really more trying to motivate you to get them and to think about them and to disseminate them, because I do think there's a real opportunity right now to have a pro-human environmental movement and to oppose climate catastrophism. It's a very important thing to do this year, and these, these books have many arguments and facts and stories that I think will be very helpful in that service, and also the more prominent they are, I think the more, the better the discussion will be. Now, I happen to be coming out with my own book next year, uh, and it's slightly frustrating that it won't be out for this election season and the discussions around that, but it's very cool that these are around it. So another reason I'm promoting them is I just, if it's really cool that there are, uh, there are books that I'm generally in agreement with on these issues that are out now. Okay, so let's start out with False Alarm by Bjorn Lomborg. So just give you... Um, just an overview of the, the basic sections of the book. So the maybe he's got an introduction and then he's got a section called The Truth About Climate Change, which is trying to look at climate change and its impacts on humans uh, objectively and, and proportionally. Then he has a section on how not to fix climate change. Uh, actually, let me just, well, yeah. And then he has how to fix climate change and then tackling climate change and all the world's other challenges. So that's really high level. Let me just dive into each one and just tell you a little bit about each one. Uh, the truth about climate change is really interesting because he's, as I said, he's trying to look at it objectively or proportionately, which is something that I admire and is unfortunately all too rare. Usually treatments of climate change look at it as a binary, like does this exist or not? Are we causing it or not? Versus how significant is this in terms of magnitude and in terms of uh, its actual impact, positive or negative, on human life. And there are three elements that he does really well. One is, I mentioned this earlier, he focuses on, he's very focused on IPCC. Uh, so he focuses on what does the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, what do their reports actually say versus what do the mainstream media say? I'll sometimes use the term knowledge system because I, I find that useful. So I think of the New York Times, the Washington Post, different social media leaders, I think of them as the knowledge system. So there, there's a system that that's supposed to bring us the best synthesis of specialized knowledge, and I often think of it as a big failure. And what Bjorn is doing, in part, is he is, he is explaining, like, he's showing, he's looking at, okay, what do the actual specialists say? Like, I'm not going to just rely on the New York Times. What do they actually say? And that is is fascinating because he's constantly, I'll give some examples later, but later, but he's constantly finding things where it's just what you've heard is just such a distortion. And again, it's not that 
the scientists in question studying this are distorting things, although that can happen too. And sometimes there's disagreement and often the extreme scientists for one position are being trotted out to serve somebody's agenda. But he's, he's been saying, like, look at this actual paper. It says something totally different than you've been told. Or one sentence has been taken out of context. Here's what it actually says. So I think that's really good. The second thing he does really well in terms of looking at climate objectively is he incorporates adaptation. And I'll talk more about that later, but that's he does that over and over and over and really really, really well. So if you're looking at a flood or a drought, he's just always looking at what are humans actually going to do about this versus I'm going to, I'm going to assume that the, the climate conditions change and that the humans don't. And then I'm going to be really afraid. And if, if you did that with anything, you would be uh, really afraid. I mean, even something like oil, it's, I guess, a perennial one, but not, not at the moment. People aren't worried about running out of oil because oil prices are really low. But if you just think about what would happen if oil companies did the same thing over and over, they didn't explore for new things, well, they'd quickly dry up the wells that they were uh, drilling and completing, and then you'd run out of oil. So it's like, oh, well, the conditions change, and the oil in the ground that we're using is no longer there once we use it, and then, oh, well, everything's going to be terrible. Then you could take this like uh, for any kind of industry. So he's really good at just looking at not only what conditions might change, but how might humans change with the conditions? And then the third one, and this is really unusual, is so not as only does he incorporate human adaptation, but he incorporates positive human impacts on climate conditions. So he talks about, I forget his exact wording, but what I call the fertilizer effect. So global greening, more CO2 in the atmosphere leading to more plant life. He talks about that. And he also talks about in specific areas where warming could be expected to be better. Now, his view is that overall, the negative changes in the climate conditions will outweigh the positive, but he's very objective about, at least methodologically, we need to look at both. And that's so unusual. People are, there's such a dogmatism with this issue, because if you just think about it, it is crazy to think that if we change the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, and that has a warming influence, and as well as there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, which we know is plant food. The idea that that has only uniformly negative consequences is crazy. That's that's a religious view. That's just you expect, you're just thinking of it as a hell narrative. So you're thinking of it as, oh, well, we sinned by putting CO2 in the atmosphere, and therefore Mother Nature is basically making this an earthly hell. And in fact, I, I retweeted from Bjorn Earlier today, he had something from one of the head UN people, I think in the environment program, basically saying that COVID-19 was punishment for our sins against Mother Nature. And like, this is just total dogmatism. It's just thinking that, oh, well, if we did something, it's a sin for us to change nature because unchanged nature is the standard, so it must be bad. And, and Lomborg just totally rejects that, doesn't engage in that at all. He's very clinical at looking at, okay, what's negative, what's positive. Then his next section is how not to fix climate change. And so what he does is he looks at the, the dominant policies today and he shows how many of them are either ineffectual or doing more harm than good. So he looks at certain kinds of like personal changes, like, oh, well, if you change your diet, is that going to do something? Or if you drive an EV, what's that going to do? Or what do green energy policies do? And he's generally, in this section, he's critical of a whole bunch of things that people tend to be very 
uh, positive on. So that's, that's an interesting section. And then the next section after that, uh, which I definitely have some disagreement with, but I, I still applaud his methodology, is how to fix climate change. So in this one, he advocates a... He, he's interesting because he advocates uh, a carbon tax, but it's not a carbon tax with the perspective of we need to eliminate CO2 emissions. He believes that there's kind of an optimal balance of, and, and many climate economists uh, believe this. He cites a lot the work of William Nordhaus, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work. So it's not at all in the minority, but he, you would think he's in the minority just based on what you hear in the news, where it seems like everyone is in favor of of rapid uh, elimination. But so he thinks like, okay, if we set the carbon tax at a certain point, then that will prevent a certain amount of warming. And, but it'll also allow a certain amount, a lot of prosperity to occur. But what's interesting methodologically is that he acknowledges very clearly that there is a huge trade-off involved with the carbon tax. So he says just very clearly, okay, this is going to make life more expensive this is going to slow down progress in the poorest parts of the world. And he says, so like we have to recognize that in that a carbon tax, it always involves uh, a negative. And that is, I think that just as a starting point is very important to acknowledge. And he's also not only that, I was not only impressed by that, but I'm impressed by when he's talking about the implementation of it, he doesn't do this ridiculous uh, fallacy that almost everyone does when they talk about policy, which is they assume that it is going to be uh, implemented by omniscient angels. So they say, oh, well, here's a carbon tax, and we're going to have a perfect way where everyone in the world is going to do it, and it's going to be easy to collect, and people aren't going to cheat on it. And, and Lombard looks at it and he says, no, like all of these things are going to be huge, huge problems. And so we have to factor that in to the cost of it. And that's, this is often goes under, uh, the banner of, of, uh, of public choice theory, but, and this guy named James Buchanan, I think he won the Nobel prize for, uh, talking about that. And it's just very admirable that he's actually looking at these things in a level, uh, headed way. So I don't, I think for a whole bunch of reasons, I don't think carbon tax is justified, including for the kinds of reasons he mentioned, but including, I don't think that the IPCC or anyone has, can actually establish to the level you would need to that there is going to be a large degree of truly harmful warming that justifies restricting people's standard of living and um, and progress. I don't think that knowledge exists objectively, and if it doesn't exist objectively, then you cannot. I don't think you can properly force it on people because, as Lomborg mentions, the costs are really high and they're high to the poorest uh, people. You can do things like you can innovate, and he that's that's going to be actually the next thing. So he talks about carbon tax, but he doesn't at all position it as, oh, this is going to get rid of emissions. This is going to solve everything. So his big focuses are innovation, adaptation, geoengineering, and uh, prosperity. Prosperity is an interesting one, but basically innovation you know, he just focuses on, well, that's, uh, I'm sort of importing my own view because I forget exactly what he, uh, what he says about this, but it's basically that, it, you know, one form or another, he's saying that, look, you know, for emissions to go down really means in the end that, that it has to be cheap to have low emissions or no emissions energy. And so that's, that's something that is going to require a lot of innovation. That's not something that's just 
that's either here or right around the corner with solar and wind and batteries. And so he thinks, well, it's worth investing in different kinds of breakthroughs. Now, I tend to think he's very optimistic in terms of government leading these things and how well that's going to go. And I think it'd be really interesting to bring, to have him and Matt Ridley uh, discuss that. But nevertheless, I do agree that innovation is crucial. And I'm particularly interested in what can government get out of the way on to increase innovation. And I would put decriminalization of nuclear energy. So changing that whole legal framework to not discriminate against nuclear. I think that's really the key for innovation. So people can explore nuclear just like they explore startups in their garage. And I do think nuclear is fundamentally safe enough where with the right laws, you should be able to do that versus having this just incredible uh, bureaucracy that slows everything down. He also talks about uh, adaptation. He's got great material on that throughout the book. Uh, so I've already talked about that. Uh, geoengineering. This is a really important one. He makes a good, so geoengineering is trying to directly impact the global climate system. And he makes the point that it's not that we should do that now, but it's good to research now uh, in case it's needed later. And he gives some leads there and gives some suggestions of, on how that research should be uh, conducted. And then he talks about prosperity. And that's really connected to adaptation because from the perspective of climate danger, the more prosperous you are, and I'd think of it as the higher your productive ability is, the more you can produce anything that you need in life, including you can produce, uh, m you know, much more effectively uh, produce protection against climate. So I thought that section was really interesting. And then the final section, which is just the end of the book, is tackling climate change and all the world's other challenges. And it's a brief section, but what I want to highlight in that is just he's talking about, again, he's looking at this issue in its full context. So the, the theme over and over is he says, this is a problem. And again, he thinks of it as more of a problem than I do, but nevertheless, I think this is the right way to think about it, whatever the scale of it is. This is a problem. This is a concern. This is a challenge, but it's not the only one and it's not the biggest one. And so if you if you only look at this one in isolation, you don't look at the full context, you are going to ruin a lot of people's lives. And he's very clear about that. All right, I, I've ended up talking more about these individual sections than I expected. I, I'm probably going to end up giving Mike's book a little bit uh, shorter treatment in part because there's some overlap, but I, I definitely, I'll, I'll give it at least some good coverage because it is it is really uh, good. So just a couple of things on what I like about this book that I haven't mentioned or some that I have mentioned. So I really like how he handles adaptation. My favorite part of the book is, I would put it as, he exposes the utter failure of our knowledge system when it comes to catastrophizing climate change. And he has some just great examples that are ironclad about what the media say and even what some of the leading catastrophist authors say. Like he he gets he has a bunch on David Wallace Wells' The Uninhabitable Earth, which is a total hack job. And you'll see when you read the book. So for example, he's got just this claim that was popularized about, oh, 187 million refugees are going to occur. And then, you, and then you look at the study and it basically says, if people did nothing, this is what would happen. But they are going to do a lot. And so it's probably going to be, and then it ends up being something like the hundreds uh, of thousands. And you just look and you just say, how could you possibly take this study 
where these things were very carefully stated and you just took the number that was just stated as, yes, if we did nothing, this would be this. If if things got worse and this, or conditions changed and we did nothing, this would happen. And he's just points out like, that's not what the study is saying. It's just a complete misrepresentation to catastrophize things. Another one that's on a related topic in terms of sea levels and flooding is he has a good example from Vietnam where it's being said, oh my gosh, in this amount of time, Vietnam's going to be underwater. And then he points out, oh, well, this is actually already underwater and people are living underwater. And in fact, over a hundred million people in the world already live below sea level. And he points out a lot of the adaptation around that. And you just think like, what the hell is going on with this pseudo knowledge system that we have where people are doing this research, they're finding this stuff, and then it's just being completely distorted to the point where we're told where it's plausible when an AOC says, oh yeah, the, the world is, scientists are telling us the world is going to end. And we all hear, oh, the climate scientists say the world is going to end. And he just shows, this is not true. You know, what the actual reports say is something like, if they're predicting that maybe we'll only grow, and I don't have, I forget the exact number, but it's, it's basically like, it's the equivalent of instead of we're going to grow if these things happen, or in their view, maybe when these negative changes happen, we will only be four times richer than we are today versus 4.3 times richer. If we could somehow have all the benefits without that side effect, which I I say, and Lomborg says we can't, but just think about that. There are reports that are saying, yeah, the world will be way better off by 2100, will be much richer, people will be healthier, et cetera, et cetera. But there will be some side, a significant side effect due to these climate consequences, and they portray it as their the scientists and the researchers saying the world is going to be worse, when in fact they're saying it's going to be less, a little bit less, amazingly better than it'll actually be. So I just think that's a tremendous service that he uh, he does this. Uh, and then just one final thing is he's and this is true of Schellenberger too. He's a very good explainer of things. So just in terms of different kinds of things, if you want to understand the idea, whether it's an idea you agree with or not, but something like a carbon tax or, uh, you know, a given kind of, uh, any kind of policy proposal or how, you know, how given like flood adaptation works, he's just very clear at explaining it. Okay, so that is false alarm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, this book. Again, sorry, I don't have a copy of False Alarm in front of me, but I'll take advantage of having Mike's book, uh, Apocalypse Never. So broadly, this is a, this deals with a broader subject matter than False Alarm, although False, False Alarm deals with, a lot with human prosperity in general, but this is about, a book about environmental uh, alarmism. And one interesting aspect of the book, and this is definitely consistent with Schellenberger's thinking, is it's got this interesting, you might think of it as a duality, but it's whatever you want to call it. He's got a, he's got a very strong focus on the quality of human life. And he's got a very strong focus on preserving nature or at least certain parts of nature. And he, he ends up with very interesting conclusions about how to do that. And normally people think of it as there's a, there's a conflict between technology and preserving nature and what he shows, and, and not only technology, but also economic development that's applying the technology. And his view is, no, actually technology and development are, they're not only good for humans. I mean, I won't say only, but they're not just 
uh, good for humans. They are incredible. They are just absolutely uh, vital to preserving nature at the same time. So I think that is um, super, super valuable. A couple examples of this. So one is he talks about aquaculture. So that's that's the use of technology basically to create more fish. And he talks about how using aquaculture, including in, in, in effect factories, like actually land-based uh, places where you're, you know, you're breeding fish. And he, he basically shows this helps a lot with protecting wild fish. So if you're concerned about overfishing, this aquaculture is amazing, yet people tend to think of it as, oh, aquaculture is bad, it's anti-fish, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, no, if we, when we can manufacture this ourselves, then we have to have less um, impact in terms of the broader ocean, if that's a goal. He gives the kind of classic examples also of uh, you know, using, basically, if you have to use wood for energy, like if that's what you need, wood more broadly biomass, then if you have to live on that, then you're really going to have an enormous impact on your whole natural environment because basically for the basics for the basics of life in terms of cooking your food and heating your home, both of which are essential needs that people have, they're they're gonna they need to consume the nature around them versus if you can create those by other means, then you can preserve and enjoy the nature around you, including habitats of different kinds of species. Another one that I had never thought about, but that makes total sense now that I've learned it from him, is talking about how factory farming protects wildlife and how just the amount of land we use for farming crops, and then even more so for for the grazing of animals, is just so massive. And so with, you know, the more you can have what are called factory farm conditions, the more you can have different kinds of habitats for different kinds of species you're interested in. And he has some good arguments about how factory farming can in fact be very humane. And there's this false alternative of, you know, either, you know, either you just have a kind of primitive thing where everybody just runs around and takes up enormous amounts of space and resources, or you just have the most abusive kind of factory farm. And he, he, he very convincingly shows that to be a false alternative. Uh, another aspect of the book that it, that is a, just a general aspect to note is he's got he uses a lot of stories and in particular he uses a lot of stories that he has experienced himself either in his life as an activist which is pretty interesting because he's very clear he's been interested in environmental issues since he was a teenager and he talks about he in fact at one point you know, he, on his 16th birthday he charged money to his birthday party so he could raise funds for the Rainforest Action Network. So he's really interesting, and I'll talk more about that in a minute in terms of his development, but draws a lot on personal experience, which is it's cool to hear his stories and it's cool to hear him on the ground. So just an overview um, of the book. It's kind of, uh, the, the titles are, are a little bit less, like Lomborg's is very kind of, you know, here's what's wrong and here's what's right. And uh, Schellenberger is more themes woven out uh, like an emerging through different topics. So he starts out with, it's not the end of the world, which is a good overview of why alarmism isn't true. The next one is Earth's lungs aren't burning. So he talks there, the central focus there is on um, this idea that the rainforest is the lungs of the earth and that we're 
uh, you know, and that it's burning down at an unprecedented rate. And he, he just gives a lot of factual context to that and refutes the idea that, oh, it's the lungs of the earth and explains where that came from, which is crazy how kind of one obscure thing that was debunked just makes it everywhere. And this is part of the failure of our knowledge system, how there's just this rewarding of catastrophe claims. And so any crank who calls himself a scientist says something. And then if it if it validates people's worldview, uh, and probably in this day and age gets clicks, then it just becomes, oh, well, that's, that's what science says. The Amazon is the lungs of the earth. And if those trees weren't there, then we'd all, we wouldn't have any oxygen. Then he goes into uh, enough with the plastic straws. So it's about plastic straws, but it's more broadly about the issue of plastic, plastic pollution. What are the real sources of that? How significant is it? What can we do about it? And with all of these He's never, he's never, his goal is never to say, oh, well, there's no issue here at all, but he's good at, at looking at the issue, looking at it proportionally, and then really looking for what are effective solutions. And invariably, the solutions involve more technology and more development, not less of them. And then you see invariably the people advocating less technology and less development don't really care about the problem. They just want the problem as a pretext. Now, I, I won't attribute that view to him, but I think that emerges over and over. Then he has um, the sixth extinction is canceled. So he gets into this idea that, oh, we're in the midst of a sixth extinction, which is uh, very wrong. And also just talks more about this idea of how you actually, like if you actually care about preservation of different parts of nature, you actually need to be pro-technology and pro-development. Maybe my favorite uh, chapter is next, Sweatshops Save the Planet, very intriguing title, but it just does a great job of showing how manufacturing, in particular, the manufacturing industry is such a pathway to prosperity. So manufacturing industry basically involves using a lot of energy, uh, you know, people using high energy machines to make stuff. And he really hits home the point that this is a crucial pathway up because even if you don't have any resources in terms of physical resources, you know, if you have people and they're trained and they're, they have machines with them, they can create a lot of value and then they can capture some of that value themselves and be way more prosperous. So he has an interesting story about a young woman who's going to work in the factory and like going from the farm and talking about other, most people being happy to go from the farm to the factory. And he doesn't, he doesn't lionize the factory, at least doesn't make it seem like a perfect place, but he's, he's very good at showing like on balance, this is way better for people and that this is a crucial pathway. And I thought, oh, this is a really good point. It's definitely not something I've stressed enough in my own work. So I'm sure I'll have something more of it in Moral Case too, thanks to uh, Michael Schellenberger. Then he has another chapter after that called Greed Saved the Whales, Not Greenpeace. This is really interesting. I, I was, I, it, it particularly, I knew the story about greed saving the whales in the 1900s, because uh, I know the history of oil really well. But in the, he talks about in the 20th century how there had been a decline in whaling pre-Greenpeace and how that's related to things like palm oil and just, just fascinating to see. And again, how technology and development give you the ability to preserve nature. It basically makes it much more cost-effective to preserve nature and much less cost-effective to use the parts of nature to, to, for your basic needs. So that was really interesting. And also it involves discussion of not just the, you know, the plumber of the whale, 
but also I think it's called the baleen or baleen, but basically the, the plastic-like material of it that was very valued. And he also talks about ivory in this context and then just talks about how synthetics derived from oil and natural gas have just been uh, far superior. Have your steak and eat it too. That's really interesting in terms of just meat uh, and environment. He's tends to, um, maybe the most interesting part of that is just has really interesting moral discussion of meat. Uh, so I'll, I'll just leave that to intrigue you, but he made some interesting points about it that I, I hadn't thought of uh, before. Then he really goes, he talks about energy through this point, uh, including in manufacturing, but in the rest of the book, he's really talking a lot more about energy. So he has saving nature is bomb. And so that's, that's, uh, that's a section on nuclear energy, including nuclear bombs, but it's mainly about nuclear energy and a lot of the distortions about that and about all the virtues of it. And, and I mean, if, if anything, Michael Schellenberger is known as a you know, champion of nuclear. That's certainly something that I identify with him a lot on. He's a very pro-technology, pro-development champion of nuclear and very excited by its potential, as am I, in that you just have this incredibly dense source of energy, it's incredibly clean, it's incredibly safe, and yet we've demonized and criminalized it and, and certainly stifled its evolution. I don't know what its evolution would be. I don't know how dominant it would be in different things if it had been free, but I would sure as hell like to find out, and I would like to find out in my lifetime going forward. Then he has a chapter, Destroying the Environment to Save It. And so this is this has a lot to do with uh, green energy, and particularly from the perspective that green energy, I've talked about it's not really energy because it doesn't produce reliable low-cost energy for billions of people. It's also not really green in terms of it has just these massive impacts because it's dealing with very dilute as well as intermittent uh, fuels in terms of if you look at the sun and the wind, they just don't contain in any given area, like space, they don't give you that much energy. So that means you need to take up a lot of space and a lot of resources to harness it, et cetera, et cetera. And so he has some interesting stories about that. Then all about the green, that's his next chapter. And that's a lot about the green movement's different political efforts, including some of the corruption that's existed historically with the green movement and some of the fossil fuel industry to oppose nuclear. So he's got some really interesting stories about that. And I, I do think that's really important to point out whenever that's occurring. I'm very pro-fossil fuels, but I'm definitely not pro any kind of anti-nuclear efforts by, historically at least, by the, the fossil fuel industry. I don't know much of that today, except that some oil and gas companies, I think, are parrot a lot of renewables propaganda because I think they know that the renewables won't really work. And plus, the renewables involve a lot of gas. So there's a lot of disingenuousness in terms of acting like, oh, well, we're BP. We really like, we're, we just want to provide a little natural gas when the wind stops blowing. They know full well that's not true, but they're trying to get, probably trying to get rid of their competition, plus trying to keep the green movement from attacking them, which won't work very well. It hasn't worked very well. And then uh, the final chapter in terms of the content, the uh, like the technology and the economics of energy is about the denial. It's called the denial of power. And this has a lot of really good stuff on green opposition to energy and development, particularly in the develop the, you know, the undeveloped world, the developing world, what I'll sometimes call the unempowered world. And I found that really interesting. And then actually, I realize I've not read the last chapter, but I'm fascinated by it given the title. And it's called False Gods for Lost 
souls. So I have no, um, I'm, I mean, I, it definitely has a lot to do with what's the philosophy slash religion involved in the modern environmental movement, what I would call the anti-human environmental movement. So I read a little bit of this chapter, but I'm really interested in what Schellenberger has to say, particularly because he's, he's unusually knowledgeable about the philosophy, different environmental philosophies. That's a lot of his earlier work. He had a book called Love Your Monsters, or at least an essay, and he, he had a uh, something called the Eco-Modernist Manifesto, which I believe was co-authored by someone named uh, Rachel Pritzker, whom I've met uh, before and like a lot. Hi, Rachel, if you're uh, watching this. And so he's very in, into the philosophy of this. And so this is part of why I think of him as, as a leader of the pro-human environmental movement. So very interested in what he has to say there. And then the epilogue. So super interesting content. You know, both of these books highly recommend it. Couple things just to stress that I, I particularly like in the book. I, I mentioned some of this earlier, but he's got a really genuine humanism. And Lomborg does too. They're just very focused on, but Schellenberger has all these really good, uh, good stories of people that he's met or dealt with, uh, particularly when traveling to poorer parts of the world. So it's, it's really interesting to get those stories and there, for instance there's this woman named bernadette in congo and that is really i mean it's really sad but it's it's just really important to hear these stories i won't give away what happens but it's really really good at the same time so he's got this genuine humanism genuine concern for individual human lives but very genuine love of nature and different people have different degrees of enthusiasm for like the non-human natural world. Uh, my own has, I'd say, dramatically increased in the last five years, in part just visiting uh, Africa several years ago. And I don't want to act like I had some amazing conversion experience, but you know, it is really amazing seeing, just spending a whole chunk of time observing nature and just coming to appreciate certain things. And, and from a certain perspective, I think of it as nature has... In a similar way, I think of art, and maybe naturalists will find this offensive, but I think of it as you know, these evolutionary forces have created these unbelievable designs of these different animals, and some of them are just incredibly beautiful, and they're fascinating to learn about and to witness. And I, yeah, definitely, all things be equal, you don't, like at least a bunch of them, you don't want to see go extinct. Uh, now, you have to figure out how to do that without hurting the humans, but that as, as Schellenberger talks about, it's like technology and development and then freedom and property, I, I would add freedom and property rights that make that possible. Um, another thing I like about the book and Schellenberger's work in general is he, he, he communicates an evolving view, uh, evolving views, particularly in the sense of evolving views on how humans can benefit and preserve the most beautiful parts of nature. I mean, definitely he, he talks about being sympathetic at least to socialist causes when he was young and he talks about being you know very into renewables and believing in climate catastrophism and you can see that he's evolved he's had certain values from the beginning but he's he's evolved in terms of how to achieve those values and that's something i always admire of course sometimes you can you can say well i think my values are wrong but i think often what people do is they they're not clear on the values but they're clear on a set of policies and then they become defined by the policies 
and then it's really hard to move from the policies. I think this is basically the whole political uh, debate today. Just people become entrenched with a set of policies or even a party that advocates some barely coherent kaleidoscope of policies. And so I really like, and Schellenberger's communicating, no, I have these values and I'm learning more and more about how to achieve them. And that I think is persuasive to the reader that, hey, maybe you should think about that uh, as well. Another thing I like, which relates to the stories, is he's always seeking to experience things concretely in that he'll talk, you know, he goes to poor countries, he goes to different parts of nature to observe gorillas. He's just very much on the ground, which is a, a journalistic impulse that I admire a lot. I don't always have it myself, but whenever I do go on the ground, I really benefit from it. So I, I like seeing that in other people. Another thing he does well is he talks to, you can tell just from the the content of the book, he he starts conversations with people he expects to disagree with, and they're really interesting conversations that he has. And part of that is he just reaches out to people he disagrees with. So he, some really fascinating things I've learned about different people's views, it's because Schellenberger called them up and talked about them. Like There's this guy, I think he's out of Princeton, Michael Oppenheimer, who's a climate catastrophist, and Schellenberger relates the conversation that they had. And he's challenging Oppenheimer on, okay, if sea levels rise by three feet by 2100 or something close to that, is that really catastrophe? And he pushes Oppenheimer on it. And as as sad as it might be, this is an unusual kind of thing where different people are actually engaging other views. So I like that uh, as well. And then the final thing, and this is something I think I mentioned with Bjorn Lomborg is, because they both have this in common. They're both very good at thinking of things in terms of trade-offs. So they don't make this mistake of acting like, oh, well, if this is imperfect, then it's uh, bad, and then it should be illegal, and I have my own perfect scheme for the world where everything is going to improve perfectly, and they're just very much looking at, okay, this person, like, they've got a life. Does it make sense for them to... uh, to go to this factory, or even if he's talking about the Amazon area, does it make sense to keep up each and every tree when Europeans didn't do that at all? And does it make sense to criticize these farmers for burning, you know, for doing slash and burn architecture? He's very, very much looking at the trade-offs. And so that's part of looking at the full context and they're looking at it a lot from a human perspective. So that, hopefully this has been a good uh, sales pitch for these books. Definitely uh, not getting paid for it or anything like that. I, I know uh, I met Michael Schellenberger once in person. Uh, I guess we've exchanged some emails and he's been on the show and Bjorn Lomborg, we've only met by email. Hopefully I'll get him on the show soon, but I just, I'm very enthusiastic about these books coming out and disseminating them. So I hope you're excited about them and I hope you buy them both so that the book has a greater chance of being successful on its own, which helps promote their thinking, but then also so that you become empowered with some of the uh, ideas and facts and stories in these books. Think that these books combined are at least a powerful move in the direction of challenging climate catastrophism. I do think as, as, as impossible as it may seem to challenge it, I think that it is really vulnerable and particularly when people are saying, no, I'm not, I'm not claiming like some 
all the science is wrong. I'm really looking at the big picture. I'm really looking at the full context. And here's, here's what actually follows from that. If we actually care about human life, I think that the, this kind of pro-human approach to climate issues and everything else is going to be very effective. I found it effective myself and I think it'll be, you know, these guys have big audiences. They already have a lot of credibility. And I think these arguments and these facts are going to reach a lot of people. And I hope that, you know, whatever they can do to climate catastrophism, I can help uh, deal another death blow next early next year when Moral Case for Fossil Fuels uh, 2.0 comes out. But that'll be a little while, so let's focus on these books for now. All right, so thanks to Bjorn Lomborg and Michael Schellenberger for working hard and creating these books, for being leaders in the pro-human environmental movement, and for challenging climate catastrophism, and I guess positively advocating ways of thinking and policies that will advance human flourishing and human progress, including the safety from and enjoyment of nature. That is it for this week. Hope you enjoyed this discussion. Hope you enjoy these books. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. To subscribe to my weekly newsletter coming out every Wednesday, go to industrialprogress.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you need any kind of speaking or media, go to industrialprogress.com slash speaking. And if you like our work and want to help accelerate our progress, that's me and the other people who work with me and support me at the Center for Industrial Progress, you can become an accelerator. So you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerator. Next week, I'll be back with another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.